you you have tried the the virtual reality headsets and whatnot. I was just um, flying via a, a drone. I, I imagine through the the hills there at Wookie Hole. Oh, really? Yes, they have a three D, and and you can look all around. It's the Cheddar Hills and all that that's over there. It's pretty cool. It, it gives you a better uh, idea of really what you know what what the terrain is, what the environment is that they're diving in. Completely opposite of like Florida. <laughs> Completely. You know, it's mountainous, and hilly, you know, rocky hills and, and valleys with rivers flowing through them. And it's, yeah, and beautifully green. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful area, but really cool. You got to fly through the Mendip Hills. Yes, the Mendip Hills. Yes. So I got to experience flying through. I, I didn't actually fly through. This is the thing about VR for you old guys. <laughs> You're not actually doing it. You feel like it. The visual, the visual is is 360, you know, so you can look up, down, back, around, and you can see, as you're flying over the region, you can see the, um, how beautiful it is. It's, uh, it's just incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. All from the comfort of your bed. <laughs> exactly. I was just sat there. And, my, you know, Lee's sleeping. She, she's oh, go, yeah. trying to go I, to I, sleep. I, but for she, a little while she was. You're, yeah. uh, so you're like, honey. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm looking for the Mendip Hills, honey. <laughs> honey. Yeah. Oh, I'm exploring the Mendip Hills, smacked. honey. <laughs> here, you, here you go, taking it to a place I never, I never intended. everybody we are back with week three of international cave diving month can you believe half the month is already over it's hard to believe jamesy goes even, quick even when february literally just started yesterday but yeah our month is halfway over 2022 is going to be another one of those years that just blows right on by i can see it right now <laughs> that happens as you get older james I'm already I'm already <laughs> running out of time for for July and August. Dude. Uh, We're in February. I hear you, man. Days go quick. So, Brando, when we last left the people off, old Balcom and Mossy Powell were uh, doing the little underwater dance at the bottom <laughs> of the underwater dance. Yes, not that not that dance. They were doing the hard hat. You know, uh, dance uh-huh. uh, in, I think it was Chamber 7 in Wookiee, where they just right. floated those barrels and made it up to the surface. and They were having a little celebration, yeah. Yeah, and they, they basically, they had just gotten to the, they got to the point where, okay, hard hat diving is over. We've, we've taken it as far as we can take it. And from there, they were going to move more into a oxygen rebreather from this point on. Then again, later on, they were going to hit the extent of the oxygen rebreather because of depth limitations. Right. Like yes. They were starting to get into some, you know, sumps that were 20 meters deep. Yeah. And even then they were pushing 2.0 or greater on the uh, PPO2s as a regular practice. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were, they were limiting that O2 rebreather at a nine meter. Yeah. Yeah. Which is running that PPO2 a little bit high. 
compared to today's standards for sure. And maybe for for uh, our listeners, you tell them uh, an oxygen rebreather is, is pure oxygen you're breathing, 100%. Yeah, so. do, yeah, do it. Hit it up. Back then, they were 100% oxygen, so you were breathing 100% oxygen into your lungs at depth. So the uh, partial pressure of the oxygen, if you haven't had a nitrox class, you'll really, we, we put it at 1.6, which means 20 foot is where you should stay. But these guys were using a 9 meter, which is, you know, close to 30 feet. And uh, the PPO2 would have been close to 2.0, which is pushing it a little bit. Yeah, it's running pretty pretty hot. There's people that do that nowadays. Yes. You know, in you know recovery from a long cave dive. Usually but, in but a dry environment. But they're in a dry, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in a dry habitat, or they've got a full face mask on. And, and a lot of these rebreather units that these guys were using, and, and there were a couple of incidents where this happened. They were on a full face mask. Yeah, and seized up. Delivered by a hose into the bag, but they still had the issues, right? seizure yeah um a co2 hit you know where the the guy ran out of oxygen and basically just passed out yeah well rebreather problems yeah typical rebreather Rebreather problems problems. yeah like uh you hear about rebreather problems today in in the 2000s um and that's nothing new i mean this is going back into 60 years before that yeah yeah although the rebreathers have become a lot a lot more reliable and a, a lot safer as far as um, being able to monitor your O2 percentage, thus your partial pressures, and the scrubbing of the CO2. The systems have just become much, much more reliable, not to mention the electronics that are, that, um, are doing the sensing of the O2 percentages. But yeah, back then, they didn't have uh, all the fancy stuff and you know, all the analysis, too, and all the experience with rebreathers that we've had over the years to help shape the manufacturing of them, the, the making of them. Yeah, they didn't They didn't have sensors. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. It was, it was just all, it was <laughs> all mechanical. Right? Yeah, you didn't really need one. Well, it would have been nice to at least sense the, the CO2 to see if your scrubber's working. Yeah, you didn't need them because you're breathing 100% oxygen. <laughs> you you know what you're breathing. It would be a few years later that old Kenneth Donald would come into the mix doing that study for the British Royal Navy about mm-hmm. oxygen and the diver. Right. Where Because uh, this time, you know, the, this oxygen malady of the O2 hit was, you know, still, you know, question marks of right why is it, why it's hitting sometimes at... You know, 20 feet, sometimes at 30 feet, sometimes at, you know, where this is all occurring. Like, where do we set that limitation? Yeah. Yeah, well, they did end up setting a limit, but they still are, I mean, they're still kind of wandering around in the dark as to why. Why does oxygen cause a seizure activity in the brain? And Yeah, we still don't know the full. But we do have a lot more data that we've um, analyzed and come up with relatively safe and and what i mean by that is you know you're 99.999999% sure you're not going to have a, a oxygen hit if you stay at the 1.4 kind of thing as your limit 1.4 PPO2 as your limit 
right? Right, exactly. Now, these guys at the time, right, you know, World War II is just kicking off. Exploration at Wookiee gets kind of put on hold for a little bit. Right. And, and what they get their hands on are all these military surplus oxygen rebreathers. Right. <clears throat> and that, that mark, that, what was it, the, the amphibian Mark I rebreather would be the, the new tool of choice for the gang coming up. At least for a little while. But also remember in the background, old Jacques is, is working with uh, Gagnon, uh, Emile. Anyway, he's they're working on the uh, Aqualung. Yes, the the, the, the French are exploring the the use of compressed air and Portable. developing the Aqualung. The the English are hard on. The, we're using this oxygen rebreather. What are the Maybe What are the Yanks doing? What are the damn Yanks doing? And the Italians and the Japanese. Where's the rest of the world? We're, we're still, uh, the, us Yanks are over here just free diving still. I don't even care. What about the Australians, mate? They're not even, they're not even thinking of this yet. They're, they're swimming in the budgies, mate. <laughs> Better pack your budgies. That's not a rebreather. No, that's a rebreather. That's no rebreather. Yeah, and wasn't it right about this time the... Uh, the cave diving group was formed a little bit after uh, the war was over? Yeah, so in Martin Farr's book, he says that the first serious attempts on sumps were made in Britain and in France in the 1940s. Previous dives had shown that using standard equipment was largely impractical, that that being like the hard hat right. stuff from, from Sieb Gorman and whatnot. And significant progress in all underwater spheres had to await the evolution of self-contained equipment. Britain's contribution in this field had come initially with the production of the oxygen rebreathing apparatus, which was demonstrated proficiently by the frogmen of the Second World War. As a result of this, cave diving in Britain and Italy adopted similar equipment, which was readily obtainable after the war, whereas in France, the Aqualung was the favored self-contained equipment. And then, yeah, it was 1946... When, you know, Balcom officially started the cave diving group and uh, ended up having, you know, by by the late 40s, there had a handful of divers that were, you know, the main mission was exploring the rest of Wookiee Hole. Right. And other places as well. I know they they sectioned off the cave diving group based on uh, the area of Britain that they were covering. Right, because they were they, they started down in the south, mm-hmm. but then later on it spread in through Ireland and all in that area. Right. So yeah, so by April of '47, they were kind of back in the swing of things over there at Wookie and had moved upstream into Chamber Nine, and it was about this time that the diving operations the restrictions for them were lifted so that they could start exploring in the daytime. Because remember, you had mentioned before that they were like a midnight only after all the tourists had left. Right, yes. Yeah, they didn't want the uh, tourists to have to witness the exploration of the, the caves underneath the churches and the, the attractions there. But um, I now, think Duncan, they, they became an, an attraction, the cave divers, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and Duncan Price, you know, in that article from Quest, 
mentions that, you know, post-war divers also used stimulants to be able to stay awake during the late-night explorations that were occurring at the time. Well, I think so, so we do that. Were... <laughs> we're, do, we're doing that right now, James, actually, <laughs> as we sip on our caffeinated beverages. So around this time, the British military started infiltrating, so to say, the CDG trying to get a couple of members in there. They're curious as to what was going on. And it, it turns out that in Price's article, he says that this was hardly surprising given the remark made at the time by diving physiologist Professor J.B.S. Haldane that if there was a Bolshevik revolutionary spirit to be found in the U.K., it was to be found in the ranks of the cave diving group. And uh, Haldane was an honorary member of the organization and provided advice concerning various aspects of diving medicine. Now, this is not the John Scott Haldane of the dive table fame, but I believe his kid, if I'm not mis- mistaken, John Burden yeah. Sanderson yeah. Haldane. Not John S. Haldane. So, but. But studying, you know, you know, decompression, physiology, still. yeah, 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 yeah hyperbaric still. oxygen and hyperbaric medicine and the effects of pressure on the human body. Price says that sadly, the CDG suffered its very first fatality at Wookie Hole in April of 1949 when a diver ran out of oxygen, returning from a training exercise in Chamber Nine. It was a terrible blow for the group as the victim was not one of their own, but an experienced open-water diver and former Marine commando who was a guest of the CDG. That's kind of sucky, but it isn't the first time military-trained divers have incidents uh, within caves. So, in the darkness beckons, this is known as the Marriott accident. Like Marriott Hotels? Exactly. Meaning you should get a good night rest before you go diving into chamber night. I thought that was when your kid peed the bed when he stayed at a Marriott. <laughs> That's called the Marriott accident. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in a spot where um, you know, we're hitting some new names like Donald Coase and Bob Davies and John Buxton and Oliver Wells are these new names that are taken over in these early days of the CDG. Um, Coase had said that, you know, confidence was running high and they were doing pretty well despite using a bunch of, uh, you know, experimental gear. And he remembers a time in Wookiee in Chamber 7 where he says, I decided to see just how long I could manage on oxygen in the bag after I couldn't get a full normal breath. When this happened, I started to breathe quickly and quite shallowly. This caused no obvious distress for a period of one to one and a half minutes. In fact, I felt quite okay, and the shallow breathing became quite automatic. My mind became quite a pleasant void, and where previously the major thoughts had been of the cold, I felt in a curious, inert, and neutral state towards the temperature. It took an appreciable mental effort to think of turning on the oxygen again, and even then there was no real desire on my part to do so. I had to think pretty hard to remember how to do this. As soon as the oxygen was turned on again, 
I returned almost immediately to my normal senses. Yikes. That's <laughs> what happens when you don't have any uh, fuel <laughs> to, to run the brain, I guess, right? Well, the brain does suck oxygen and sugar, and you just depleted it of oxygen. You know, Farr had mentioned that it was a foolhardy experiment, and he was lucky that he didn't black out and die, you know, but these guys were experimenting still, right? I mean, they're trying to figure things out along the way. Yes, and they don't know what they don't know, so. (laughs) And unfortunately, he says it's about to get worse. Here we go. And this is where... They were out of beer at the pub. (laughs) It just went downhill. Out of well, kind of. Out of chips. We're getting back. We're getting back to the (laughs) two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please. (laughs) Crisps, yes. The old fish and chips too. So the AEDU, the Admiralty Experimental Diving Unit, that's uh, British for for the NEDU for you Americans out there. Um, you know, like uh, like Price had said, you know, they were gaining some interest in this cave diving group and all this stuff that they were u- doing with uh, their old gear. And uh, they sent some guys down to, to get in there and uh, had one Gordon Marriott, who was an example of a classic diver that later would become a cave diver. He was a Royal Marine. He was a frogman. Commando. Yeah. He was a uh, he was a played a critical role on the storm in the D Day beaches. Had five hundred hours underwater as a Navy diver, and uh, later came to the CDG. And he and another guy, uh, Grossvener. We're going to take place in Wookie Hole in April of 49. And uh, they had a couple of teams. One of them was going to be Balcom, Coase, and Davies. And then the new recruits, Marriott, Grosvenor, and Lucy, were going to be support divers. Yeah, just to re- remind the readers, too, at this point, our commando friend has one dive in a cave. He may have 500 hours of diving, but he has one dive in a cave. Yeah, he's still still the newbie, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a cave green, green caver, whatever you want to call it, greeny. He's very green. How's that? Verde. Oh. He's a rookie. He's a newbie. He's the uh, FNG, as we would say. So before the main dive... He had did you know his one dive in uh, Chamber Six with Coase, basically just kind of showing him the location a little bit, and it it seemed to go pretty good his one cave dive. So he's he's pretty much got it, Brando. I mean, he had a they say that he had a light failure, which which he was able to handle. So he's pretty much ready for anything at this point. Is this Martin Farr saving? He went saying that he went to six. Because in here it says seven on the accident report. Well, in in the the practice dive, the lead up. Right, and that's what they're saying. They had to take them to. They said it was a rule that new divers make it at least make at least two trips to the seventh chamber in Wookie Hole before proceeding to nine. 
But in view of Marriott's exceptional record, one trip to seven was judged enough. Yeah, so that's in the accident report from the uh, British cave diving accidents from the CDG, right? Right. From This was a historical account of all the accidents up until, I think this was from like the late 70s, right? Right. So this was the first one, and it's going on. This is happening in 1949. Considering they started in 1936 and up until now, this was really it. It's pretty good. It's uh, commendable. Yeah, they've got a I mean, very similar to a lot of the, the the Dan accident reports and the BSAC reports we read in the past. You know, this gives a, a lot of these as well, specifically from the perspective of the cave diving group. Right, and a little report on you know what happened, how it happened, and so in uh, the in this chamber six, Far is going on to say that you know they had the light failure. Um, Davies ended up having some trouble with his face mask and w- withdrew from the operation. Balcom also bailed, but said that you know he was going to stay back in you know chamber three just in support. You know, so they had were having some issues that Marriott you know was was doing well. You know, you know working against in, in spite of a lot of the experienced guys having a bunch of equipment problems that that got them out of the dive. Farr says that at about 8.30, all divers started for the main base, with Davies and Marriott opting for the longer route via the loop. As Marriott was keen to see as much of the cave as possible, he was thoroughly briefed by Davies on what to expect and appeared confident. All went well until Chamber 8. Having chosen the correct line, Davies let Marriott go in front. Visibility was down to zero, but the line could be felt twitching indicating that Marriott was making normal progress. When it stopped, Davies assumed that his colleague was a belay ahead and making faster progress due to the better visibility in front. Only on arrival in Chamber 3 base did he realize his error. Marriott was in trouble and had left the guideline. It was then nearly 9 p.m. Davies immediately returned, Coast followed, as did Balcom 15 minutes later. Marriott was found lying face downwards along the line, pointing away from base. His bypass was opened, and his cylinder and breathing bag were empty. His body was extricated and taken to the platform in Chamber 6, a mere three meters away, where artificial respiration was immediately applied. There was nothing. Marriott was pronounced dead just after 10.30 p.m. How'd you like to be, you know, 20 feet away and and not make it, you know? So it's just like that uh, that that wreath we see inside the Regina uh, where that instructor died. And he's right there. He's right there at the door. Yeah, just inside. Yeah, well, it just shows but you. There, but there you go. Like, when you're in black, 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 Black as ink water, where you can, everything is literally by feel. He might as well have been 5,000 feet away from that hole. Like, you've you right. got no clue. And, and same thing uh, in, inside the Regina. Right. Like, you, that instructor, like, standing up inside that break, right, inside the, uh, the cargo holds of that ship, standing, kicking, finning, and stirring up all that bottom of Lake Huron. He might as well have been a thousand feet, feet away. In, right? Yeah, it, you can't see. 
it's completely different when you can't see at all. And it's a chocolate milk that really, I don't know if, you know, people can imagine just diving in chocolate milk where you put your light into your mask and it, it just kind of makes a dark brown, you know, it goes from black to a little dark brown. But these people are, you know, they don't have any overhead dive training, really. Uh, so that is one of the things that are covered is lost line procedures, um, you know, lost diver procedures, et cetera. So they do have an idea of something to do. To right. Back. And in 49, yeah, sta- standard protocol was still developing. Walking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was, I mean, <laughs> right. They like they weren't really swimming yet. Like swimming right. and having fins on was a big inconvenience. So they were still in the bottom walking mentality of keep moving, right? That's how you keep the visibility because you're going to keep stirring everything up. It's <laughs> yes. good for the guy in front. It kind of sucks for the guy Everybody in the back. back yeah. But, uh, you know, that that's just all they knew. And, you know, the trip in may be okay. And that went on. The trip out is going to be crap. Right. And, and that went on well through the 50s. Right. Where they were still doing the bottom walking as standard procedure in there. So it's believed that Marriott ran low or out of gas in his primary bottle and was trying to switch over to the secondary bottle when he lost the line. Right, they had a, a, a spare reserve O2 bottle. It wasn't built into the system. I'm curious where Martin is getting his information. I mean, this is a report from the cave diving group, but he's got all this excess stuff. Yeah, he's he well. He's got so much stuff where he quotes out of like Balcom's writing, so I'm sure oh, okay. it's from that. Okay. So yeah, Martin Martin Farr says that when they found Marriott, his reserve bottle was missing, but later on, when they went back in there, they found it laying in um, I think chamber six, and it was laying on the bottom full. And they made the assumption that Marriott had tried to untie, untie this reserve bottle. And in doing so, he dropped it and then uh, had a hard time, you know, finding where he was, lost where he was, lost direction, couldn't get back to the main line and, and basically exhausted the one bottle that he did have. Unfortunately, this would later become like a classic cave diving fatality, right? Like losing the line. And exhausting your gas in in search of the way home. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, well. That's why there's so much time spent in uh, in cave training on what to do if you do lose the line. But losing the line, looking looking at the uh, cave diving group uh, accidents, it says losing the yeah. line had two fatalities and one non-fatal. So still not not too bad. But guideline problems overall were were the major one of the major causes between equipment and guidelines, and this guy yeah, had both. There's, there's a lot. There's yeah. a lot more to to line problems than just completely losing the line. Right. Right. And, and because back in these days they were still, they weren't running, you know, a halcyon reel into a gold <laughs> line, yeah, right, yeah. and losing the line. Like they were running line like like a mountain climber blaze like ties right. off runs they're in support they're still using line to signal each other back and forth they've got pull signals that, that they're doing so that's still an area of contention with line problems right 
Yeah, I mean, uh, getting lost on the line can happen, whereas you're, you're going around in a circle. <laughs> so there's a number of things that can go on with that line besides just losing it. You're right. So by the mid-50s, Bob Davies was one of the other CDG guys who ended up getting his hands on an Aqualung. They were having issues with, you know, that max depth of nine meters with the oxygen rebreathers. And old Davies figured, you know, th- this is going to be the next way that we are going to make our move. And Wookie is on the, the Aqualung. Mm-hmm. So he ended up setting up a set of doubles that he was going to plan on trying to swim with as they moved past Chamber 9, past Chamber 11, and move on through this cave system. So he's got two 40-cubic-foot cylinders on his back. Yikes. So they, uh, they get in the water. They leave Chamber 9 at 11.45 in the evening. All went well up to the lip of Chamber 11. It's labeled the lip. I can see it. So that's where they go. So they get to the lip where they're in and around that 10-meter mark, and then the the Chamber 11 basically drops. But the sediment and everything had really gotten kicked up, and visibility was shitty. And old Davies didn't properly secure the lines. And also, his aflo was basically falling apart. That was basically the old, the aflo Davies, that original affluent later morphed into aflo Davies, which was like a big, like, it reminds me of like my old grandpa's toolbox, you know, that <laughs> had that big bar handle and it had a reel in the back of it and a light in the front and a compass and like just a whole collection of stuff like a big toolbox <laughs> that they were carrying to, to lay line that and you know what happens when you start uh, working hard you lose visibility uh, you start struggling clearly these guys are still in between the phases of do we bottom walk or do we swim so he's working his ass off Gets anxious, starts over-breathing, loses his buoyancy, gets pinned up against the roof. And, uh, like, his buddies in the water, like, see him basically disappear. So they're at the lip. I mean, the lip goes up another, you know, few meters and down a few meters. And uh, everybody's falling down over that lip. He goes popping up to the surface, lying all, <laughs> all over the place. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, you know, you... It's like cave training. It's like the yeah, class, right? You know, right. Where they purposely t- entangle you, uh, or a- a- exacerbate your own entanglement, I should say. But yeah, right. This is how, like nowadays, you learn. You never let that line get slack. You don't get it slack. You don't put your back to it. There's a lot of things you don't want to do with line. You really shouldn't go under lines, you know, unless you absolutely have to. But yeah, right. It, it, the line. In a, in it's a, respected. You need to respect it's it. It's your best friend in the world. <laughs> or your worst enemy, as we <laughs> see here, right? Yes, it, it, until you don't give it the respect it deserves. And yeah, quickly, it's it's your enemy. Yeah, I remember first learning to, to run line and what a cluster blank that was. <laughs> now I'm censoring my language here. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, learn. Who are you? Who is this guy? I haven't had enough coffee. I haven't had enough stimulants. So after Davies goes corking to the top of Chamber 11, the rest of the team assumes that he just went back. So they all turn and like, all right, let's let's, let's head back too and go go see what the hell happened with uh, Davies. I, I I'm noticing a theme kind of uh, within a lot of this, which which is when they can't find someone, they just assume that oh they they're back at the at the camp, they're back at the surface or wherever. Uh, which I tend to start believing like this was a normal occurrence. This was normal every day. We lose our buddy buddies and we go back to camp. We just go. Yeah. Well, we eventually. I go would back have camp. to. I would have to assume the same thing as you. And yeah. this one was the one that was so scary. This is the <laughs> one that we're actually going to talk about because there's for this one. There's probably ten exactly of the, yeah. this same thing happened and everybody got back. Right. So yeah. So Davies eventually comes down and. The other part of that is, hey, I better find my buddies. They've got to be around here somewhere. <laughs> Where the hell they go? <laughs> you know, it's that miscommunication that, yeah. you know, like going through cave training like we do over here, you know, th- this is a major part of the class, right? Before you get to really go cave diving, you got to learn how to run a reel. You got to learn how to stay on a line you got to learn how to get back to a line if you get off the line you got to learn how to find a buddy that you know is off of the line you learn those are all parts of the things that you're learning so that you can safely get in the water and go do some early cave dives yeah you well you do it topside you you learn the no visibility line following drills which is uh in and of the itself it's on the top on the top side, when you're doing it on dry land, the dry land drills, it can uh, it can be time consuming and it can uh, be confusing. Um, I think the big thing to learn out of that is when the visibility does go and you're on a line, uh, you're tremendously slower, so you use a lot more gas. Yeah, right. And his gas was getting desperately low. Right. So he immediately switches to his second cylinder and equalizes the bottles via the manifold. So basically he's running, like, letting the bottle get low and shh, draining some in, yeah. shh, draining some in, shh, draining some in kind of thing. I don't know if I'd equalize the bottle. Would you equalize the bottles? Well, again, they're, they're, they didn't know what a thermal valve <laughs> with, a, <laughs> they had with an equalize. isolator in manifold. In other words, the, valves, and, the bottles had to equalize. You, you couldn't just open one or the other. Yeah, okay. yeah it was uh, okay. the, the, the so he gets into some clearer water finally, but he's further than he's ever been. He's heading upstream. He's down to 15 meters of depth. He sees like an offshoot that he goes up in search of some air and eventually does. He, he hits the surface and he's in a, like a small air pocket where he can climb out of the water, takes off of his, you know, takes off his gear, which now like his whole system's positively buoyant because the bottles are so right. low on gas that they've lost all their negative buoyancy. And he's up on the surface, just in the dark, in this air pocket chamber, uh, shivering, relieved that he's not drowning underwater, but um, he's trapped. Nowhere, nowhere <laughs> near being in a good, happy yeah, place. Yeah. Right? 
Well, this this can happen uh, down in Florida caves too. I mean, as well as Mexico, but this uh, loss of buoyancy control and going positively buoyant is can be very very dangerous. For example, losing your weights would be really bad in a cave system. Yeah, right. Because you're locked. Now you're locked into a pocket up in the ceiling. How do you get down? How do you get down? You can't swim that that stuff down. Depending on your buoyancy, I guess. But but yeah, that's that was a big thing brought up in in almost every cave class I ever had, which is um, it's better to not have ditchable weights in a cave. Right, especially in in. <laughs> I would agree with that as well as in open water, the way most people rig their ditchable weights. Yeah. Because they take, you know, yeah. 20, 30, 30 pounds on one belt or one weight pocket with 10, 12 pounds on each side oh, wow. jammed in. You lose one of those. <laughs> yeah. You're going like to, you're the, leaving. The, you're leaving the bottom very quickly. Yeah. yeah. yeah you're, you're not controlling your ascent. And, uh, you know, you and I know, I mean, that's the way we learned early on diving. You throw your weight on a belt, and if you need to get to the surface, you just inflate this yeah. right-hand release, <laughs> and up you go. Oh, yeah. Now it's weights, the yeah. opposite of what I teach. Uh, yes, you well, know, because a properly weighted bo- – I mean, that's the cornerstone, right? Buoyancy and weighting is the cornerstone of diving. Huge, huge parts of that uh, elemental foundation of diving. And buoyancy control only comes from proper weighting. Proper buoyancy control. And proper weighting means you're not over, you're not under. You're properly weighted. Right. So, <laughs> I think that's what that word exactly. means. Exactly. Well, yeah, technically, you don't need ditchable weight if you're properly weighted for the most part. I mean, there are s- situations, but yes. Like on a single on well, a single tank. Well, you don't need ditchable weight in the way that most people are teaching it. Exactly. Right? Because that's it's, it. too, it's too much ditchable. The only ditchable you need is enough to cover the weight of the gas in the bottle. So six pounds on an eighty. It, yeah, yeah. Right. Any more than yeah. that, and you're you're never gonna make a safe ascent. Bingo. You know, so everybody assumes that I ditch the weight in an emergency so I can get to the surface, but now I'm, I'm you're bent or embolized. Mm-hmm. You're not better off. It's it's interesting to me how like a, an incident like this still il- illustrates problems that we're having in the dive world with new newer trained divers, right? Seventy years later, exactly. So this all was happening like around midnight, and all the gang, you know, they, they were talking like forty five minute dive. Here, you know, they're starting to get worried. They get in a little bit, look around for them. And by 3 a.m., they realize, okay, he's either dead or maybe by the grace of God, he's <laughs> he found an air pocket to get right. up into. And they decide, you know, they're going to, you know, uh, go look for him. But the, the, they don't have high hopes for old Davies. What's the date of this, James? What year are we looking at? This was 55. 55. Okay, so. So they've been doing this for another, yeah, ten years almost since the formation. Yeah, of the yeah. CDK. And Balcom's in there. I mean, Balcom's been exploring this for twenty years. He's like right. been an active cave diver for twenty years. So Davies ended up um, finding a small passage about a meter in diameter, which he ended up set, naming now. <laughs> Chamber 12, <laughs> which, which I had somebody to tell it to. And 
<laughs> Should have brought a notepad with me. Left a little note. By the way, this is Chamber 12, everybody. And then uh, in the other direction, going more upstream ways, he found another chamber that he called Chamber 13. And although he's in a small space, he figured he's got a, you know, a couple of days of air in these chambers, which was kind of the thing like where this whole talk started for us was looking at that Thai cave rescue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. You know, the boys, when they finally got all the way back to the boys and saw where they were, that was one of the concerns. Right? They've been down here for, for over a week already. Are they even going to be alive? Yeah. yeah. And, and then, like, yeah, they when they find that they are alive, it's like, okay, well, this error is going to start going stale eventually, mm-hmm. right? So this becomes a whole new concern for them. Yeah. In other words, carbon dioxide is going to overtake you. Right, right. Can you imagine? You just got some time to sit there and think. I'm sure in the beginning you you had hope. You were like, okay, they're going to come get me. They'll find me. Uh, but I would say after like the first day, you'd start to go, oh, fuck me. Oh, I- I'd be going <laughs> full on alive. Like, who are we eating? Who are we eating first? You know? You're by yourself, though, dude. No, I'm talking about Davies, not those kids. I was thinking <laughs> the kids, the kids. I'd be like, well, you're not, Johnny, you know, from some Johnny, of the stuff you send me, James, about, you know, I know, uh, I know we made you a goalie because you're the biggest kid, but uh, now you'll feed the most. You, you'll feed Johnny. the most. <laughs> Johnny's <laughs> like, you're going to have to fight me for it, but he'll also last the longest. So, uh, but <laughs> yeah, some of the stuff you send me about the the, the where kids get hurt and it's funny <laughs> tends tends to make me believe like yeah, if you were with those kids, you'd be you'd be barking up a shish kebab uh, thing. Right. <laughs> so Davy starts like thinking about his gas and his bottles, and he figures he's probably got ten twelve minutes. He figures to to swim back to Chamber 9, if everything goes perfect, is going to probably be about a 10-minute swim. And he starts having the, the, the that thought right there, right, of do I wait for a rescue and hope yeah. these guys find me in this chamber that nobody know, even knows exists, <laughs> <laughs> except for me. I'm the only man yeah. on planet Earth in the world that knows this place exists. Or do I make a go for it? So finally, uh, you know, he, he starts working on his uh, Aflo, repairing that, uh, waits for about three hours, figuring he, he wants the, the bottom to settle as much as possible so the water can become as clear as he can. At almost uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, he, he sets his compass direction, you know, uh, Figuring he'd know which way to go once he got down to, to get himself back towards Chamber 9. And uh, he was also was aware that the sloping bottom should be going up. So uh, uh, Farr, des- Farr describes it by saying that after taking one brief false turning, he saw the wire left by Coase in 1949. Then his first cylinder gave out, though less than halfway back to Chamber 9. He decided to press on. In doing so, he used the line to pull himself along faster. And just 
like we say in cave diving today, this is why you don't <laughs> pull yourself along the line. It snapped. <laughs> it snapped. Of, uh, Almost simultaneously, his own reel jammed. And quickly, he removed and dropped it. Heralding the impending exhaustion of his air, his breathing became difficult. With only seconds of life in his cylinders, he also dropped his aflo, miraculously reaching air in complete darkness. Shocked, but still thinking rationally, he located his emergency torch and reassured himself that he was indeed in Chamber 9. This was at 4.07 a.m., about Five minutes later, Davies could see the glow from his aflo, about four meters deep, so he swam down to retrieve it. He said that his safe exit was now almost guaranteed because he had ample oxygen in the rebreathing set, which he had left in Chamber 9, and was able to make an uneventful exit, reaching the base finally at 5 a.m. He was tired and cold, but very happy. The devil, he said, is a gentleman. <laughs> he is. I know him personally. Let him live. So because Davies was wearing an aqualung and decided to use fins to swim easier, kind of like the rest of the gang ended up saying, eh, we want to, like, aqualung and fins bad idea for cave diving save that for those little open water scooby doos where uh us cave divers we don't need that stuff <laughs> but in reality right there, there's so many more issues that were going on with with this right i mean the the aqualone gets a bad rap brando for being the new thing that nobody really knows about the fins get the blame but i mean really we, we've got line laying issue mm. here Right. There's there's team, you know, the communication yeah. issue that that are that are so much more underlying problems. Um, the the visibility, like maintaining visibility becomes mm-hmm. becomes an issue. But again, like this, all this stuff is still so new that it's easy to throw the quick blame. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty. We're sitting here from our vantage point where, you know, Sheck developed this and. Ana- this way of analyzing accidents, you know, Sheck and others. And, uh, you know, some very smart people came together to say, listen, it's not always as simple as, oh, he just made a wrong turn. Why, why did he make a wrong turn? This kind of gets into, you know, well, Gareth's work, too, is it's not as simple as he, he fucked up uh, with his breather prep. He fucked up and didn't calculate his gas plan well enough. But but why? So you get into that with even at this point, at this stuff you could really you know in this these accidents you can really see how it's easy to a just point the blame at this you know A B or C and not ask how A B or C came to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean that's still an issue. Looking today. at accidents today to a certain degree, yeah, it's not as bad as I think it was back then, which is very easy, you know, just to go. This is what happened, and this is what they did wrong. Let's not do that, you know. Let's not misread our gauges. Let's not <laughs> let's not pull the line hard, you know, stuff like that. It's very right, simple right. to look at it, whereas there's something a little deeper, I think. 
Yeah, and when we look at that British cave diving accidents report, I mean, there's a lot of, like, the early days of diving, you know, issues that that these guys faced. Yeah. Right? Look at, I mean, um, like, when you look at the third one with John Gary McElliott in 1963, you know, this report says that McElliott was not a caver. He was diving with a local branch of the BSAC along along the added to this mine are some deep shafts which the party were exploring about 30 meters down one of these shafts there was believed to be a side passage he borrowed a twin set air lung which had already been used at afternoon so one bottle was empty it was estimated that the remaining air would last eh, about 10 minutes or so or <laughs> 100 feet, or feet which they say was probably a little optimistic very. But this guy was, he was an experienced diver. He just wasn't a caver. Yeah, well, this isn't a cave either. Technically, it's a mine. It's a copper mine, right, with dug shafts and supports and whatnot. Right, good yeah. point. Right. So this this isn't in Wookiee. This is just another incident that the, the cave diving group was, was talking about as an accident. But what, what gets me is this part here is uh, the signaling system was arranged. Oh, here we go. <laughs> this, uh, keep this in mind for the upcoming cave class or, or uh, ice for class. our upcoming ice diving class. Let's see if we want to change some things. So, <laughs> one pull is alert. alert. Two pulls pay out some more line. Three pulls take in that line that's been paid out. Four pulls pull me up. And uh, let's do a six pull one too. <laughs> no five. Yeah. I, five. I just thought of this. Way just, out. No five would be ridiculous. <laughs> the number of accounts shall not be five. No. <laughs> six pulls. I'm gonna go do take in this little side passage that I just found. Seven pulls. <laughs> What's your astrological sign? Eight pulls. Scorpio. Nine pulls. Sagittarius. <laughs> we can go be here a long time. Um. Now, the standard BSAC code at the time was, as it is now, they say, which was one pull is an alert, two pulls, stop, three pulls, go further from base, four pulls, return to base, six pulls or more is the alarm. They still don't, they cannot do the five pulls. No five pulls? What if you get a five? What if you're sitting there and you get a five? You're like, motherfuck. What am I supposed to do? Uh, <laughs> uh, five? Huh? Yeah, five is... Can you, you repeat? Five. <laughs> yeah, five pulls is... What? <laughs> huh? What? what? Huh? Again, now... I. I get it. Like, these guys come from a line-pulling language. Yeah. Right? So it, it's a little bit different, but, man, like it, it it's so confusing because it, it's so hard to, to communicate, especially somebody that's new yeah. to a line-pull. Like, we're going to experience that, you know, in a couple of weeks when we're doing the ice diving with the new guys. Was that 
an accidental bump of the line or was that a signal <laughs> well, of a that's pull? It, yeah. Was that somebody getting the line taut to get ready for a signal or was that the signal itself? That's hard to tell when you're takes practice many, many mm-hmm. feet away with, without yeah. any visual communication. Right. It's all by feel. Yeah. And they have, I, I just, again, recall back in uh, hard hat school out in the parking lot, practicing this for, for a week wearing a, a blacked-out dive helmet and towing that umbilical, which is pretty heavy. But anyway, you, you really had to learn the feel of the tugs, and both, both from the diver point of view and the tender point of view. So that communication is so easily messed up. Like you say, all you have to do is snag the line on something, and then you try to pull it off, and you're like, oh, fuck, I just gave him some signals. <laughs> Right, exactly. And now you're getting your ass pulled back in. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Or or not. He's like, just let him go. And you, you keep pulling up the slack, and you're like, what the hell? I need right, to go right. in. That's where you get to the, the um, mode of operation, at least mentally for me. The less communication underwater, the better. Absolutely, right? And, and I get it. Like I, For me... The go-to is always going to be the most pulls is get me out, get me out, yeah, pull me, yeah. pull me back in. It's the alarm pull. It's never going to be <laughs> between five, six, seven. There's one, there's one panicky yeah, exactly. pull difference of, oh no, wait a minute, I just saw something cool. You know, this stop the stop the pull in. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take this side fast. Well, this reminds me of the the story we just had on about the. Uh, Ice diving Coast Guard up in, uh, or down in Antarctica, right? And and the line pulling signals. There really wasn't any training for anybody, right? right? And it resulted in them being severely overweighted and just plummeting to many, many feet past their planned depth. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. All the feet past their planned depth. He went all the way. This is, <laughs> This is uh, like it reminds me of Fargs. Fargs. That's, <laughs> That's Fargs right there. Yeah, right when they're down they in had Vaucluse time, time and they got the line issue. And yeah, luckily Fargs at the time was like he just had that bad sixth sense, and he's like, "Fuck it, just I'm pulling. He, I don't had, care what. So, he had a Fargs. Right. I'm, I'm, he had I'm, a Fargs. 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 Yes. He had a Fargate attitude. <laughs> I'm pulling it all. I'm pulling it all in. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this dive lasted for between like five and ten minutes. He went down to thirty meters and gave six pulls. You know what that means, right, Randall? Uh, he's uh, Pisces. <laughs> and then he gives. Then he gave two more pulls. Huh. And was given a toll. <laughs> he likes milk. Long walks on the beach. I don't know what that is. Well, so as the tender, that he's going to lay out more line, right? So he, they lay out 73 meters of line. <laughs> Two. <laughs> he's given us the six poles. <laughs> he's... Uh, then he, they give two more pulls, were received after that. But soon after, he failed to respond to signals and eventually was pulled up dead. His gag was not in his mouth. 
His weight belt was missing and his bottles were empty. At post-mortem death, it was found out that he uh, it was due to a pulmonary edema, uh, probably due to anoxia or squeeze. Clearly, they say, he had not been allowing a sufficient air margin, and it would seem that he removed his weight belt when he ran out of air. Rope signals are at best difficult to interpret, but the difficulty is compounded when an unorthodox signaling system is used. Well, no kidding, man. Like, <laughs> we, we've, This seems to be a theme in, in uh, not only the Great Dive podcast, but in diving, using tethers. Now, I get it. Like, when you're on a pull system, like, that's where underwater communication in a team gets to be so important. And, again, I understand this is, I mean, this fatality here was from the 60s. A lot of the ones we looked at in the past were from the 40s and the 50s, and, you know, but but doing that pull system. But Coast, Coast Guard and, and was just in the 2000s, so. Very true, yeah. yeah. Having Sorry. a system that's so simple where you can't communicate anything other than by feel. Like, I want nothing more than okay <laughs> and get me out of here and, you know, I clean up the line, basically. Right. Right. I need more line or pulling the line, just a little, little connection. Yes, everything's okay. And um, this is an emergency I, I need I help need to get out. Yeah. yeah. Well, this also illustrates the false sense of security. I think a lot of people feel, especially in the ice diving class, they're on a line. You're jumping in the water in an overhead, but you're on a line. So everything's, nothing can happen. I'll just get pulled back. But as we see, all these people are on lines that we've talked about. And, you know, this one got pulled back dead. So you can still have problems. It's a false sense of security is my point. Yes, absolutely. You still need to have the mental awareness at all times of the fact that you're underwater. <laughs> you're not. Yes, you're not supposed to be there, technically. Right. Uh, and uh, early on, I get it. Like, they're taking the line and using it in a way that they would rock climb. But it's still different. I mean, rock mm -hmm. climbing and, and being, even if you get, like, around a corner in the dry part of a cave and you're belaying and... You could still go, hey, yes. Randall. Yes, communication. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here. Uh, uh, it's going to be a minute. Just chill out. You don't. You can't do that. Exactly. Underwater, it's, it's a completely different again double of, of the of the of this dive that we're doing of the, of this adventure that they're on. Double edged sword, man. Lines are double edged sword. No matter how how you look at it, between communication, between uh, that and um, being entangled or lost on the lines. If you don't give them the respect they deserve, uh, that's the stuff that happens. So have respect for the lines. And they're not the end-all, be-all of getting you out safe. Well, absolutely. Uh, they are exactly what they're supposed to be described as, a guideline, mm -hmm. right, that uh, you use as a reference tool. Right, That line does not guarantee your way home. Mm-hmm. You don't 
ley line, you know, for, for the convenience of running into an area, like you lay it so that when all shit goes bad, you can get home. <laughs> you can, you can, you can use it to get you home. So that line needs to be laid in a really clean, understandable way. And then the navigation markers along the ways is, is like, we'll see what happened in cave diving over the years, maybe in future years of great dive podcast, international cave diving month, we'll come back to stories of, how the markers came in place and how the arrows came into place. And mm-hmm. you, they realized, you know, down in Florida that just having a line with no markers on it eh, isn't yeah. quite good enough. Yeah. Isn't quite good enough either. Like we need to have a way to know I'm heading in the right direction. Yeah, old Shecky. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> the clothespins. You forgot to add clothespins. The clothespins. <laughs> Bringing the, the clothespins. Yes. All right, everybody. Well, hey, there's week three of the Great Dive Podcast International Cave Diving Month. I can't believe we're already on the at the end of Cave Diving Month. Brad. Getting there, I know. But but this is a this is uh, something that we needed to do is cover the significant accomplishments and contributions of the cave diving group out of uh, jolly old England because these guys they were first and um, and they're still going strong. And they they uh, they blazed a trail. Yeah, absolutely. And when we you know look at what started this whole discussion was to talk about that cave dive that so many people asked us to do an episode about. And I, in fact, I just on uh, m- Monday morning I got an epi- uh, I got a message from my dad saying, "Man, have you have you seen the rescue? You gotta watch this yeah. movie." I was like, Dad, you gotta you gotta listen to Swilton's Hole. Here's a link to this <laughs> podcast. It goes back so much, so much deeper than just just that tie cave. But but it set the page for a lot of this very different style of cave diving than what you and I enjoy going to do. Right. For a way to get in some mm-hmm. beautiful, fun, enjoyable dives. Yeah, these are are mostly dry cavers that learn to dive. Where we we would be divers cave divers that are learning to dry cave over there if we went over there right oh yeah we would have to learn how to dry cave Mm -hmm. learn how to rock climb learn how to repel just to get to the first sump learn how to speak better with a british accent too i think learn how to enjoy (laughs) learn how to enjoy a spot of tea instead of just a black coffee (laughs) yeah yeah but all good stuff. Yeah, this was this was much needed uh, in the repertoire of the old Great Dive podcast. Yeah, I've I've have been having a lot of fun looking at how things developed over there. This this has been great stuff. So, shout out to all you Brits for uh, all the uh, amazing work you've done with building the the cave diving community and the diving community in general. So, and uh, until and a very large ta to them, very large ta for all they've done. Ta. Ta. You know Ta. You, you've, have you been to England? No. Oh. Dude, I'm sorry. Ta is thanks. When you, when you, I, that was uh, when I first got over to uh, Cyprus. I was, I was on a British base, but it would all say Ta when you would give them something. Like when I was handing out drinks, when I was attending bar. Ta. 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 So there you go. That's a very all, all I'm getting at is very large ta to the Brits. Well, ta ta for man. now. <laughs> we'll see you next week. 
Don't forget your tatas. We'll see you next week. And tatas. Blah, blah, blah.